Welcome to the Vanguard Church Podcast. You're about to hear a sermon from Vanguard Church Central in the heart of Colorado Springs. With every message, it's our prayer that you hear and learn how to live out your faith in real relationship with Jesus and with others. May your faith be strengthened, your hope increased, and your heart inspired to live for Jesus no matter the cost. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Good morning. This is a little bit different, isn't it? I don't get to preach often, uh, but when I do, it's always a treat. And I am chomping at the bit back there, watching my team uh, worship and lead you in worship without me. But they're incredible, aren't they? Can we clap it up for the worship team? They're amazing. Uh, You know, I can't really start... uh, a sermon without telling you a little bit more about me, because I know there's a lot of you that are like, who is Aaron? Who is this guy? Um, He sings good sometimes, um, but we don't really like, we don't really know him. So this is good for you and good for me, because I get to share with you who I am, and you get to hear about who I am. And most importantly, you get to hear about Jesus and what he's done through my life. Is that okay? I love this. All right, so in June of uh, 2015, I was at about like the lowest place in my life thus far. Um, And please, please excuse me. I have a little bit of a hoarseness. Um, If you remember, I have a a cyst on my vocal cords, which is really funny to be a, a, a worship pastor, but um, bear with my voice this morning. In June of 2015, uh, I was at the lowest place uh, in my life. I was living with a family from the church I was going to, and I didn't really have like an understanding of what I was called to do or what I was created to do. And I, I was, uh, I was being uh, really rebellious. Has anybody ever been rebellious? Okay, thank you, Candace. I'm not the only one. Like, I was being really rebellious towards my mom and my brothers and and towards God. And I ended up in a place uh, where I was uh, homeless and squatting in a red roof inn. I was a borderline alcoholic. Um, I uh, did a lot of drugs. And I was crossing the threshold into one of the greatest battles of my life thus far, which was an addiction to pornography. And I was having a hard time, and I ended up squatting in this red roof inn, uh, very homeless, and a young uh, pastor um, that hails from Kentucky, of all places, (laughs) Um, when Pastor Kelly sees this later, he's going to give me grief. Um, But this young pastor from Kentucky had just finished seminary in Atlanta, and he got to go to this, um, this church in Atlanta's red light district. And it was a young church, a growing church, and he had all the influence. Uh, he had all the budget, at least from what I saw. He had budget. He had influence. He had all the things that you would want as a young pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, in a big city. Um, and he... 
uh, me and him uh, knew of each other. We didn't really know each other. He knew my name. He knew I was local. And, uh, but he didn't know what I was going through. And so he, he uh, hit me up on Facebook Messenger and was like, hey, um, would you come to my church and be my worship leader? And I was like, no, I don't know about that. I wasn't too sure about that. And, you know, through, through some arm twisting, I ended, up, I ended up saying, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll come. And he drove the 25 minutes from deep downtown Atlanta off of Metropolitan Parkway uh, all the way up to the north side of Atlanta um, to pick me up from this Red Roof Inn that he had no idea that I was squatting in. I was, I was homeless at the time. And every week he did that until I got to a place where I was safe and healthy. Every week he came and he got me so I could lead worship for his church. Now, this is like, this is a really tender story in my life because I knew that God had called me to be a worship leader. I knew he called me to be a pastor. I knew he called me to, to, to preach and to teach and do all those cool things, but I wasn't really in that place. And if it had not been for Pastor Antoine Yoakum and his wife, Bethany Yoakum, um, I probably wouldn't be here today. I certainly wouldn't be the man I am today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with a challenge for you this morning. The challenge is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you actually have agreed to make disciples. And you've actually agreed to lead and feed his flock. You made that agreement when you said, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. Following him, that's what we do. We make disciples, we lead, and we feed the flock. Does all that make sense so far? You tracking with me? Okay, we're going to dip right into the scriptures this morning. We're continuing in our series, um, Creed, and we've gotten to this point. God, you are my father, and I will follow you. I am chosen, forgiven, redeemed, and restored. I'm broken and mending and called by the Lord. I'm a leader. This is where we are this morning. I'm a leader. If you have your internet device or your Bible or a program, you can turn to uh, John chapter uh, 13 with us this morning. And we're going to get right into the scriptures. Father, help me to preach this in Jesus' name. We're going to try to answer the question, how do you pour confidence and value into those around you by extending your own self for the kingdom of God? That's a mouthful, so I'm going to say it again. How do you pour confidence and value into others by extending your own self for Christ? Kingdom. That's the question we're going to try to answer this morning. But first, context. 
In the first 17 verses of John 13, we read about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And there, and that is where we're going to camp this morning. This is the evening of the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are on the outskirts of Jerusalem celebrating Passover, which is arguably the most important holiday and festival of the Jewish calendar. Think of it as their July 4th, their Independence Day. Except it's not a day. They make a whole week out of it, a couple weeks out of it. Passover commemorates Hebrew freedom from Egypt and the establishing of a lasting covenant with the God of the universe. But this is no normal Passover. Jesus, Yeshua, has made claims that he has authority and power to establish a new covenant. A covenant that requires him to die just a few short hours later. The disciples think he's talking about Jerusalem and Israel and overthrowing Rome. Jesus is talking about the entire world. Someone say amen to that. Amen. He's talking about the entire world. So if I were to, if I were to headline this, if I was an ancient um, a typist and like a scribe, I would, I, would, I would headline it like this. Self-proclaimed king of everything ascends to his throne by becoming a slave and then dying gruesomely. That's how I would headline this because that's what happened. If I had no context and I was asked to write about this, that's how I would try to describe it to a reader. Jesus had spent the past few years telling everyone that his kingdom was not only not of this world, but actually upside down. His kingdom was upside down. This is, this is what that means. Everything that is proven to gain us power, money, and status in this world leaves us broke, lost, and desolate in the next. He has made this, these, these claims that his kingdom is upside down. It's backwards than us. In order to be first, you got to be. In order to live, you have to. Quick learners. In order to rule or in order to lead, you must serve. Serve. In order to lead, you must serve. On and on, Jesus makes these claims, and now he's about to die behind this message. It is no normal Passover. We're going to start with uh, John 13, 1, and it reads, now before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Catch this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That is good news. He loved us to the end. Jesus, the begotten of God, sent to the world to die. 
In Christianity, we love to romanticize this, don't we? We have, a, we have a tendency to romanticize this. Uh, we think of Jesus, we see these pictures of him with what I like to call the ultra perm. Like his hair is like super straight. And it's like, I know they didn't have straighteners in zero AD. Like, you know, just, I mean, just straight hair. And he's like smiling. And he's like, he has a peace sign up. That's where we get it from, by the way, that peace sign. He's like. Like, we paint this picture and we romanticize him as, like, this, this handsome, like, strong and, like, swole, norm, like, noble gentleman when the Bible actually says that there was nothing that drew us to him. He was very regular and very normal. But we romanticize it. And we make him almost to be like Superman. Do we not? We romanticize it. And then, and then this is what we love to do in Christianity. I love this. And as a, as a worship pastor, I feel a lot of things a lot. So I have to like sometimes have the Holy Spirit, if not all the time, have the Holy Spirit discern what I'm feeling versus what is true. As a creative, I experience this as well. And one thing that we love to do, especially as songwriters, we love to like make Jesus like make the gospel into a love song about us. You died for me. You died for me. And although that's true, he did die for you. I don't, I don't really agree that that's, that's the whole story. I don't. I think there's so much more to Jesus' character and there's so many reasons why he took to the cross. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he, he endured the cross, scorning his shame. So I know there's more to it than just like me romanticizing you. You died for me. What love is this? It's half true. It's half right. There's more to the story. It's a very pretty picture. And I think the reason why we paint the picture this way is because we're trying to reconcile a very hard reality for us. Can I give you a hard truth? I'm going to give you a lot of hard truths during this. Is that okay? Can I give you one of my first hard truths? Love at its fullest, love at its fullest extent causes us to die. When love is complete and whole and full and you've loved somebody to the very, very last like molecule in your being, you actually die. That's how it was designed. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said, there's no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Love at its fullest causes us to die. And let me tell you, friends, we, we, 
we die for so much less. We do, all of us. We lay our lives down for so much less than love all the time. Uh, He didn't give up the work of his life to die for the ones he loves. I want you to catch that. Jesus didn't give up the work of his life to die. He didn't, he didn't, he wasn't born and was like, I'm going to go to carpentry school and I'm going to make the best rugs there are. And I'm going to, I'm going to be the best known carpenter the world has ever seen. And then he saw a person who was like, I'm going to lay down everything to die for you. That's actually, that actually wasn't how it went down. His mission, his, his goal in his life, his 33 years, scholars believe, 33 years of his life, the mission of his life was to love you. That was, that was the mission. The mission was to love you and to die as a result of that love. Does that make sense? You following? This was, this was Jesus' goal. This is what it means to be a true leader. Point one, love completely. Love completely. Here's another hard truth and challenge. Even when, and especially those who will never reciprocate that love. Um, we sometimes use the washing of the feet of the disciples as a case study for love and service in the church. And rightly so. Um, we put it in ceremonies and graduations. Me and my wife, we had, we had a feet washing ceremony at our uh, wedding. And it's, and it's a really good picture of love and service and somehow it, it like calls us back to center and it brings us back to a place of, oh, this is what it's about. It's actually not about me. It's actually about serving and, and loving those around me. However, Romans 5, 8 says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. I'm the ungodly. For one, this is, this is so good. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Scarcely meaning like, I don't know, maybe. I don't know, maybe I'll die. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. <laughs> but God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm referring to the two main antagonists of the Passover dinner, Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter. Judas, under the influence of the devil, literally, and Peter, under the influence of himself, pride, Jesus knew. Jesus knew that they were at the dinner. 
I imagine that they probably walked together on the way there. Jesus was in community with all 12 of his disciples. Have you ever been in that position? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a hard question, a rhetorical, and I want you to really think about it. Have you ever been in that position where there's somebody in your community that is difficult? I'm putting it lightly. Somebody in your community that not only do you not agree with, but they just seem to have it out for you. And like, you're supposed to like love that person. Imagine that. Like love the person that like despises you. I'm gonna flip it. Have you been that person? <laughs> if you don't know that you've been that person, you've probably been loved really well. If you don't know you're that person, that means no one came up to you and said, hey, I actually loathe you. But we're in community together, so. Like, if you don't know that you're that person, you've, you've been loved. <laughs> I've been that person because I've had to look myself in the mirror like, wow, you were a jerk today. Like, you were just not great. And marriage is the best mirror there is. We don't have children yet. My wife just said amen. Thank you, honey. <laughs> Can you imagine the resolve and the restraint to not only uh, love people and serve them well, but like when they have it out for you? Can you imagine how difficult that must have been? So the picture is like this, like, like Jesus, he welcomes Peter and Judas to the Passover dinner. He washes their feet, and mind you, washing of the feet was the job of a slave. It was the lowest thing you could do in that culture. And by the way, the washing of the feet was actually... It wasn't ceremonial. It feels and it sounds ceremonial because that's how we've adapted it into our culture. But it was actually a very common practice. And they would come in, guests would come in, and the lowest servant of the house would wash their feet before they walked into the house. Very similar to taking off your shoes before you walk into someone's house. It's to signify the end of a journey. You follow? That's what that ceremony, what we now call the ceremony, that's what it is. The washing of the feet was the signaling of a journey, of the end of a journey. And so, and so Jesus is getting ready to, to wash their feet to signal the end of his earthly journey. Do you see the poetry? I love poetry. And as I'm reading the scripture, I'm like, oh, wow. I get goosebumps. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Jesus is like signaling the end of his journey on earth. And he washes the feet of the disciples to signal the end of this journey. But it's what we call a double entendre. It's two meanings. It's double meanings. He's not, he's not just signaling the end of the journey. He's the one doing it to signal what happens next. 
It's beautiful. It's beautiful poetry. Jesus washes their feet knowing what's about to take place. He knows it. So here's, here's the catch. Here's, here's why I want you to get all this, because right now this, is all, this all kind of feels, at least for me, it feels very emotional, very sensational. I'm feeling something. He's, he's, he's walking with the disciples. He's having this beautiful dinner, and then he washes their feet, and he shows the greatest act of humility, one of the greatest we've ever seen. But here is the catch. If we are to be like Jesus in our leadership, we are to love and serve those we don't feel so good about. That's the catch. Peter and Judas are both at the table. They're both at the dinner. So what's your table? Is it work? That coworker that talks behind your back and you know it? What's your table? The peer that lies to you or about you? The family member that you can't seem to get along with? The person that steals your joy and your peace? Jesus says, yep, those people. Those people. Those are the people he convicts us to love and to serve hard truth. Jesus loves and serves both the traitor and the betrayer. Both of them. He serves them both. And he loves them both. Jesus loved Judas and he loved Peter. And he also loved his heavenly father. And the father loved him. And when it comes to God, the father and Jesus, nothing says, I love you quite like obedience. Let me say that again. Nothing says I love you to Jesus like obedience. He says to his disciples, if you love me, you'll do what I've asked you to do. You'll obey. It also says in the scriptures that I prefer obedience over sacrifice. Jesus is saying, I actually don't need anything from you to give me except for your obedience. Do what I'm telling you to do. That's a good tool for you parents. I don't know, just saying, if you love me, do what I'm telling you to do. And we see this with Jesus and God the Father. Jesus being the Son of God. He says, I only do what my father do, only what my father does. I only, only say what my father wants me to say. The father gave Jesus a command, and out of love, Jesus fills that command. What was the command? That's the question we ask now. John 13, 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Someone say, go back. Go back. 
Jesus was going back to the Father. He was about to be accountable to his life on earth. So he had to, he had to make sure everything was good. I have a question. Has anyone ever given up on you? Have you ever had like a leader or a mentor decide that you weren't worth the time? I have. It's painful. It's a, it's a hard thing. I've had people in the church. Talk about church hurt. I've had people in the church go, yeah, you know, God saves everyone, but Aaron, not so sure. Honestly, honestly, I've been characterized as the worst student, the worst camper, the worst, um, I mean, just like a lot. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go there, but like, I've been characterized as the, as the worst by people I, that have, you know, led me. And it's painful when someone gives up on you. It's painful. But can you imagine if, if Jesus would have did that to Judas or to Peter? Can you imagine? Jesus standing like a bouncer to the, to the Passover. Mary, you're good. Good to see you. John the Beloved, how you doing? How you doing, Peter? We ain't got no room, so. Who's that, Judas behind you? Yeah, y'all can. Y'all can go, y'all can. Can you imagine the world, the way the world would be if Jesus was like, no, thank you, Peter. Go sit down. Judas, I know what you're about. Like, the world would be so crazy. But furthermore than that, like, he washed their feet. Like, like get this. He washed their feet, knowing what they were going to do. So not only did they sit down at the table and have dinner and talked, and probably laughed, probably had some good times, probably had a little bit of drink, you know, chilling, relaxed. With all the stuff in their heart, Jesus still washed their feet. What about you? What about me? And all the things that I've done, all the ways I've offended his heart, and then showed up at church like, I'm here to worship Jesus. Only to leave church and to offend his heart. I've been married for almost two years now. Uh, over two years now, sorry. Sorry, honey. <laughs> I've been married for over two years now. And all my married people, have you ever had that after church argument? Like not, like not the before church because that one's a different kind of doozy, especially when you're a pastor and you have to like lead worship afterwards and you're like, <laughs> like I've been there, but like I'm talking about like that after 
that after church argument. And you're like, I am going to have to implement what I learned in church right now. This is, this is the kind of things that we do to offend the heart of God right after we've spent time in his presence. So don't look at Judas and Peter like there's some like oft distant reality like, well, they betrayed the son of God and for, for 30 coins and, and, and they denied him when we do it with our actions all the time. Yeah, we do. We do. And so we have to be careful when we grow weary. And Jesus, the Bible says that he stewarded, that he took care of everything that the Father had given him. Point number two, steward what's in your hands. Judas and Peter were a part of what God had put in Jesus' hands. He stewarded all of them and everything. Now, I want to be careful. Like, don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus says that there will be times where you have to cut ties in Matthew 10 and 14 as a symbol of renunciation. After you've done everything you can to disciple or love a person and they choose otherwise, you move on from them. You move on from them and and fellowship with them as a way to say that you are not responsible for the consequences of their choices. Jesus actually says that. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying like, oh, like you need to actually be best friends with the person that hates you. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is do everything in your power to love that person and to lead those people that God has entrusted you to lead. And if they choose differently, they've made their choice. And it's up to you to sometimes take a step back, recuse yourself from the situation. Otherwise, you may hurt your witness. This is what we see with Jesus and Judas. Throughout this passage, it's almost as if Jesus is giving Judas a chance to become clean. Even up to the end, Jesus releases. You see what he does? He releases Judas to betray him. He says, go do what you're going to do. I love you. I wish you were clean, but go do what you need to do. He released them. This goes to show, just so you know, and this, this helps me, that actually no one has a, a, an 100% success rate in leadership. Not even the perfect son of God. No one. Not everybody in your leadership, not everybody under your authority, whether it be family members, cousins, whether you're an auntie or an uncle and you have nieces and nephews, whether you're a parent and you have kids, you're not going to get 100%. But that should encourage you. Because if Jesus, if that's, if, 
He spent three years with these 12 people, and he still had two people at his last, at his going away party. Still offend his heart. How much more so for us? Like you're not, you're not going to get it all right. You're not. The way you reconcile that is with humility. Humility. Low. Like real low. That's actually, that's actually your third point. Get low. Like, 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 like really, really low. Humility is God's favorite. It's his favorite thing. It's his favorite thing. How do, how do I know that? I'm glad you asked. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Details for us the humility of the Son of God. He says, he actually didn't see being like God as something to grasp. You catch that? He didn't see it as something to to grab a hold of. He didn't come to earth and was like, I'm going to be God, so let me just grab my throne. Remember, he preached and he taught of an upside-down kingdom, which means if he's going to ascend, he has to descend. And my, and my thought, just bear with me here, my thought is that he got so low for you and for me that he ended up under the earth. That's my, that's my thought because I love poetry. So I see, the, I see the poetry of the Son of God who would one day ascend high. I see him as someone who's going to, he's going to ascend high. He's the Son of God. He has all power and authority in his hands. But first, he has to get low. He has to be lowly like human. Then he has to be lowly like a human servant. Then he has to be low like a lowly human servant that dies. And then he's carrying all the way to the world. Literally, the sins of you and me in the ages before us and the ages after us. He's carrying all of it. And his, his goal to love you and, to, and me fully leads him to go low. God the Father sees the humility of his son and goes, that's what I want. That's it. Everyone look, this is, this is exactly it. And because he went low, God said, I'm going to give him the throne. I'm going to give him the throne. There are places where my logic fails. Is anybody like that? Where you're just like, man, I'm going to try to explain all of this 
in a deep theological way, but really, like, there's, like, there's nothing, like, I have nothing else. Like, my logic, I don't understand how God the Father tells Jesus, you can have the throne. And I'm going to give you the name above every name. That, to me, is a mystery. When it seems like he kind of already had it, it seems like a mystery to me. But I don't need to understand the mystery in order to appreciate it. He went low. Really, really, really low. If as leaders, if we spend our influence on pride, we'll eventually have no one to lead. Amen? And we're all going to bow at some point. We're all going to have to get low at some point. So this is how I imagine heaven looking like socially. The people of God alive and well because of the finished work of Jesus, living harmoniously with all things because we live to serve and love Jesus. He took up his cross for the joy set before him. I mentioned that earlier. Hebrews 12, 2. Full communion between Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and us. And our job, your job as a leader, going back to the beginning of the sermon, your, your job is to bring as many people into that as you can. That's our job as leaders. Bring as many people into that as we can. So point number three. I think it's three, four. Thank you. <laughs> point number four. Multiply yourself. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. Believe it or not, it's bigger than Vanguard. Is bigger than Colorado. Multiply yourself. Everyone sees Jesus in you, and your job is to tell them, follow me. What Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what this is. It's bigger than you, and it's bigger than me. I'm going to ask... Uh, the worship team start coming back up. I'm going to tell you a real quick story. When, when I opened for Chris Tomlin back at Red Rocks in May, um, my older brother played drums with me. Um, and just for the record, I'm a passionate worshiper. I mean, I really feel deeply what God is doing. And I'm a passionate worshiper because my dad was. My dad would pray right before he went to dialysis. He'd pray the same prayer at 4 a.m. on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. He'd pray the same prayer every morning before he went to dialysis. He said, Lord, Denzel's going to play the drums. Brandon's going to play the guitar. And Aaron is going to play keys, and he's going to sing, and he's going to lead them, the younger leading the older. Father, would you make this happen in Jesus' name? He prayed that same prayer 19 years ago. 
15 years ago. He's been with Jesus for five years. And so when I went to Red Rocks, I'm, I'm carrying the legacy of my father. I take the stage, and there's 10,000 people looking at me, and I'm looking at them standing in the manifestation of my father's prayers. And my brother, Denzel, who is the best drummer ever, is with me playing drums. My father, being a leader, led me 19 years into the future, and he never got to see it. I want you to know, what scared me about Red Rocks, Pastor Kelly stood on the stage and he was like, he was like, I know you're scared. You got to be. You got to be scared. I'm scared for we all scared for you. And I actually, you remember that? And I was like, I'm actually like, in all honesty, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not scared for the reasons you think. I'm not scared for the reasons you think. From the lowest place of my heart, I say this. I was born to do this. I was born to worship Jesus. I was born to lead people into relationship and community with Jesus through worship. I was born to do it. I wasn't nervous to do that in front of 10,000 people. The stage doesn't matter. What I was worried about was you. I was worried about my team. I sat here on these steps and I, I, I wept and I cried and I was like if the Lord moves me forward in my career and I get to do great things and go on tour and do all these cool things who's going to watch my flock and my wife is a witness I cried more tears about that than anything Who's going to watch you? Who's going to take care of you? Yeah, you got Pastor Kelly, but he's from Kentucky. <laughs> I, was, I was worried about who's going to watch you. And so I really sense that there is a call happening. I sense that there's a lot of you here. There's a lot of you here that, that you don't really know what happens next in your life. And, and not, I'm not talking about next steps. What I'm referring to is the people in your life that God has called you to leave, lead, but you just can't seem to Get there with them for whatever reason. If you're like me, when you're confused, you probably recluse. You probably take a step back. You try not to be, you try not to be super uh, involved in people's lives. That's me. I have a hard time with that. But I sense there may be people in the room that 
that hear God calling you to minister to someone, to disciple somebody, to lead somebody. And you're like, Lord, I still need to be led. Both can be true. He can be calling you to serve and to lead someone as much as he's calling you to submit. Amen? Thanks for listening to the Vanguard Central Podcast. We encourage you to go out and live your faith in real relationship with Jesus and with others. God bless you, friend. See you next time.